join me in our responsive welcome. No matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, or Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. And let's continue in unison as we join in the gathering prayer as it's printed in your bulletin or as it appears on the screens. Spirit of God, we come today because we thirst. We thirst for love and belonging. We thirst for security and provision. We thirst for truth and hope. We thirst for healing for our wounds. Meet us here today and be for us the water that always quenches. And friends, we do have children's church today, so if we have any young people that would like to go to children's church, Christina Edstrom is going to lead them to one of our classrooms, and the young people will return before the end of the service to find their adult. We are on week three of a sermon series on letting go and picking up, which is our theme for Lent this year. And so far we have talked about letting go of ego to pick up right relationship. Uh, we talked about letting go of certainty to pick up curiosity. And today we are talking about letting go of shame to pick up acceptance. We're going to be looking at that through the lens of a story that um, we sometimes call the Samaritan woman at the well or the woman at the well. And it's a pretty complex story. Um, it's complex for a few reasons. I think, first of all, um, if you are reading through it, you see that there's just these layers of historical context of things that are happening. It's written in about the year 100. And it's written by a person who was well-trained in Jewish theology, but also really experienced in Greek ideas and understandings. And it's written for a community of early Jesus followers who were expanding in who they thought could be part of their community. So there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of interplay of ideas. And all of that happening has made it complex for a second reason, which is that a lot of our cultural understanding of this uh, story has sometimes not paid attention to that first point. And so um, we bring to it our own ideas, and we bring to it thousands of years of our own ideas. It is, for one thing, one of these stories that has been uh, complicated by the way that people throughout the centuries have seen gender and have understood that and the role that it has played. And so some of the things that we've taken away from it over the years 
um, have said more about the people reading the story than they have about what Jesus was saying or what John, the author, was conveying. And so I'm introducing this story that way because I'm going to ask you to do kind of a hard thing this morning, which is to hear the story with fresh ears. And there's a few things that are helpful to know as we go into it. The first thing that's helpful to know going into the story is that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They both saw themselves as being uh, the rightful followers of the law of Moses. So they have a similar trunk of the tree, but there are significant differences in what they believe at this point in history. And one of the significant differences is the places they believed uh, the temple should be located. And so we can think about that relationship at this time, maybe um, similar to the times and places where Protestants have, and Catholics have disagreed and even um, fought. The other thing that is helpful to know going into the story is that women in Jesus' time had to depend on someone. And usually that someone was a father and then a husband, uh, but as life unfolded, perhaps it became a son, or perhaps it became another relative, like a brother or a brother-in-law. And so we are going to be reading this morning from the Gospel of John. This is the only gospel that has this story. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. And I'm going to summarize some of the parts because it is such a long text. So the story starts as Jesus is journeying through Samaria to get to Galilee. And this is a route that's an unusual route for Jews to take because they didn't get along with the Samaritans. And John tells us, So he came to a Samaritan city. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, who was tired out by his journey, was sitting at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Jesus' disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying these things to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks to drink from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. We're picking up again at verse 16, if you're following along. Jesus said to her then, go to your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman replied, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. And then the woman here challenges him a little or asks him some questions. And she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that where the people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he talks here for a bit um, about God and about theology And he ends by saying, God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And so we're picking up again here at verse 25. After he says this, the woman says to him, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, Jesus' disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people there, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left the city and were on their way to him. We're going to skip a couple verses here, but while the woman is gone doing this, the disciples uh, encourage Jesus to eat, and he has a similar exchange with them about food as he just had with the woman about water. And uh, when the people come back, we're picking up here at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his words. I wonder, hearing that story as we did this morning with fresh ears, or as fresh as you could bring to them, what you noticed about the woman. If it was the five husbands and the one she has now who isn't her husband, her husband, you're not alone. At least since the Reformation, history has focused on this part. And so they have painted this woman with these strokes of shame. The reasoning is gone that whatever has led to the five husbands and then her current living situation must be her fault. And so the labels have been put on her, and they've made this a story of judgment and of repentance which means that a crucial part of the story has gone missing. 
The author of John is always working on multiple levels of symbolism and storytelling and community memory, and so there is undoubtedly a lot happening. But amongst everything that is happening, this isn't primarily a story of a fallen woman giving up her life of sin. And we can think about that if we notice that Jesus doesn't call her out for these relationships. And we know that Jesus isn't afraid to call people back when they have strayed. There's no go and sin no more moment. Not from him and not from the disciples. Biblical scholars who've dived into this text a little more deeply have pointed out that we actually don't know why she had five husbands or why she's living with someone she's not married to now. But it's probably not because of something she had control over. And yet, for some reason, we've become more concerned with her relationship status than Jesus seems to be. And because we've done that, we've lost out on the whole truth of who she is and what she meant to that early Christian community. That's how shame works, isn't it? It works in the stories that we tell about ourselves and about other people. In her research on shame, Dr. Brene Brown identifies 12 areas of shame that people experience. The ones that she lists are appearance, money and work, family and parenting, mental and physical health, addiction, sex, aging, religion, surviving trauma, and being stereotyped and labeled. I wonder if there's anything else that you would add to the list. I've wondered about intelligence, maybe physical ability. And I think that one of the things that we can think about where people experience shame is to think about what are the insults that we use against people. What are the bad words that we call them, the things that bullies say on playgrounds and on news channels? We see several of those at work here in the story of the Samaritan woman. You probably noticed them as we looked at the list. Gender, religion, trauma, stereotyping and labeling. But we also see in this exchange is the way that acceptance is an antidote to shame. When we bring shame into the light, and literally in this story it happens at noon, at midday, when we bring it into the light, we allow it to integrate with everything else that we are and that we do. And so in this case, we can pay attention to all of the things that the woman is, and we can include that she is a bold, faithful, theologically deep woman. Her encounter with Jesus is the longest conversation Jesus has with a woman in all of the Gospels. And it's one of the richest conversations that he has with anyone. So the story also represents a moment in history when both Samaritans and Jews began to follow Jesus, began to come under a new label, 
Christian. We miss that sometimes, not just in this story, but in all the stories we tell, because as George Bernard Shaw says, we live in an atmosphere of shame. We are ashamed of everything that is real about us. We are ashamed of ourselves, of our relatives, of our incomes, of our accents, of our opinions, our experiences, just as we are ashamed of our naked skins. And if we think about that quote, then it helps us realize that the work of letting go of shame takes some real intention. And the first step is really just recognizing that it exists, that it is at work in of us. One of the things that is so odd and powerful about shame is that we're ashamed of even feeling it. Do you notice that sometimes in yourself? It's like even admitting to feeling shame is shameful. But shame is also a central human experience. It's the first emotion that's named in the Bible. In the creation story, uh, when Adam and Eve are said to be naked, but they're not ashamed. And then later God finds them and they hide. And so once we recognize the centrality of that experience and the way that it works in us and in our cultures, we can bring it into light. That's what happens there in the bright light of day. Jesus and the Samaritan woman gather, and they're not afraid. They talk about gender. I'm a man, and you're a woman. They talk about religion. I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew. They talk about family. I've had five husbands, and now I live with someone I'm not married to. And just in those things, they touch on the other things that are at work. The trauma, the tragedy, the stereotyping. And you see what happens then when this gets named in support of community. The power disappears. They go on to have meaningful conversations about the things that have been separating them. And the power of that connection brings new connections. The woman becomes a disciple, an evangelist. She invites others to come and meet Jesus and to experience what she experienced when we reach across the barriers that shame presents. And then together they live into this completely new wholeness. In their book, which has a wonderful uh, titled Dancing at the Shame Prom, Lena Strelkoff says, the truth is a very big place, marvelous and maddening, and the joyous life that I live depends on it. It depends on the meaningful connection made possible only by embracing the wholeness of me. And so maybe we can't completely get away from the experience of shame. Maybe it is too big to completely let go of the way we're talking about today. 
but we can stop weaponizing it. We can stop using it against ourselves and against other people. And when we do that, we embrace belonging and acceptance because we come to see ourselves as whole selves, selves who can stand in this bright daylight and let themselves be seen and come away as new people. And when we can do that for ourselves, we can help each other do it as well. May those words rest on us and continue to work in us in whatever they bring to light as we turn to a time of music.